Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Ronan Lyons to speak about the Irish property market. Ronan is an assistant professor of economics at Trinity College Dublin with research interests in housing markets, urban economics and economic history. We touch on the former two today. Ronan brings us through the important factors to bear in mind when thinking about the Irish property market. We discuss how these factors have affected the Irish market through the past 20 years we touch on issues such as social housing, Airbnb, working from home, and of course, COVID-19. Roland also gives us some sage advice on how to approach home buying. Well, thanks, Roland, for uh, taking the time out of your busy home office schedule to discuss the economics of the property market. Um, I usually like to just kick off uh, the discussion by maybe laying the foundations of the different topics that we're discussing. So... In this case, we're looking at the uh, the property market and a bit of Econ 101 of uh, the property market. When we think about supply and demand, we think about if there's a shortage of supply, this can affect prices and therefore drive consumption decisions. When we talk about property markets in that context, there might be a few different you know, idiosyncrasies associated with this market in particular. So maybe you could just take us through what's particular about the property market. Yeah, I think that's a key point, actually. To start with, it is really important to remember, as you mentioned, that that this is, it comes back to, as the economists will always say, <laughs> and we get given out to by many other disciplines who are saying so, it does come back to supply and demand. And uh, sure, there are idiosyncrasies uh, uh, in the market, um, but we should never forget that the the, the basic... Uh, framework of thinking about the, the the slope of supply and demand curves and shifts in supply and demand that carries through and is really powerful in the property market because often I think a lot of the commentary is based on oh well you know uh, supply and demand doesn't work in in, in housing or doesn't work in property um, and the more I do this and I've been doing this for a while now and um, the more the opposite is true that that it's really clear that that for example. Um, supply, more supply, shifting out the supply curve lowers sale or rental prices. I mean, that is that's just just blindingly obvious. Once you look at the, the kind of the the, the right analysis. Uh, Having said that, as you mentioned, there are idiosyncrasies around housing and around supply and demand on housing. The first I would point out is that as a policymaker, you don't really want to do much to the housing demand curve. That should be coming through from the broader economy. So if you're doing the, your job well as a policymaker, you are shifting out the demand curve for housing because uh, you are creating new jobs, boosting incomes, all of that kind of stuff should feed through into, into housing if you're keeping your population there rather than them emigrating or if you're attracting people in, net migrants, that creates housing demand. So if you're a, 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 if you're a policymaker focused just on housing, you basically take the demand curve as given. 
Uh, and I can come back to kind of a few key elements of, of housing demand that we know about. There's, there's lots of unknowns, but we, we have a pretty good sense of, of the path of housing demand at the core over the next few decades. Um, but the, the focus of the effort of policymakers, and therefore for us as analysts or economists looking at it, is really about having supply as responsive or as elastic as we can. Now, in the short run, on a kind of on a day-to-day basis, a week-to-week basis, uh, supply of real estate is effectively perfectly inelastic. So if you had like a, a an influx of 100,000 people tomorrow, we simply would not be able to build whatever the 40,000 homes that they might need. Um, that's just not going to happen overnight. Um, but in the long run, we want to get to the long run as fast as we can. And we want the long run housing supply curve to be as uh, horizontal as possible rather than the short run, which is as vertical, uh, um, uh, like 90, 90 degrees. Uh, so to summarize, a lot of academic research and debate um, uh, and analysis of what's happened over the last 30 to 50 years around the high income world, basically long run uh, housing supply curves have become quite or very, depending on where you're talking about, inelastic. And Ireland, I think, is one of those places which had extraordinary housing need over the last 10 years and very little supply built. So 10 years is definitely the long run. So we can we can pretty much diagnose that the long run housing supply curve in Ireland is very inelastic and we need it to be very elastic. Before maybe we move on to uh, thinking about um, the policy context in an Irish context, there's some theoretical concepts that are that are, are something that I find very interesting, maybe we could, we could deal with, and this whole issue of, of spatial externalities and how it affects maybe the value of, of, of property um, and how this might affect maybe something to do with the, the supply and we see sort of maybe pressures in certain locations. How would policymakers, for example, take that into account when it comes to maybe loosening up the supply or, 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 or allocating resources more efficiently? Yeah, if I, if I give you one example, like kind of a policy relevant example in an Irish context, um, Irish people pay very little annual property tax um, compared to pretty much most other high income countries in the world. So it nominally it's a 0.18% um, um, uh, uh, property tax. Um, and even because of, of the upswing in value since the valuation date in 2013, it's really more like a, a 0.1 or a 0.12% property tax. And that's, you know, I won't say a full tenth of the typical property tax, but certainly less than a fifth of the usual property tax paid in, in most countries. Um, the flip side is then if you're not taxing property on an ongoing basis, you tax it up front. So development levies are quite high. Um, if you, for example, if you're in the, in the center of Dublin and you're trying to do some renovation works, you must be charged a metro levy um, up front, um, uh, even though the metro might be years away. Part of that's because there's no way of recouping the value of the metro on an ongoing basis once it's built. And this is the idea of value capture, um, uh, most commonly thought of as a land value tax, for example. Um, but what that would do, a land value tax would shift the burden from, say, commercial rates um, or development levies um, to uh, development land speculation hoarding, that kind of thing, um, and therefore make the supply of land greater. Uh, it would make the cost of land cheaper, but it also, and this comes back to your question, it also prices in social improvements. So if you put in a metro, the value of, of land in the area goes up, so the, the tax recouped uh, goes up, and that can be used to pay down the, the, the debt for the money that was borrowed to build the metro in the first place. Um, so uh, it's a way of internalizing those external effects. Land is unique in that sense. One of the idiosyncrasies of, of real estate is you have this immobile land bit. Land isn't completely fixed in supply. You get erosion and you can get infill and that kind of stuff, but it's basically fixed in supply for most people in most circumstances. Um, and it won't, it cannot respond to taxation. Um, so if you tax capital, mobile capital, the fear, of course, is it just jumps to a different jurisdiction and, and away it goes. It, that cannot happen with land, um, which, which means that something like a land value tax is not only um, good economic sense, it's also kind of good progressive sense as well. It's, a, it's one of those rare taxes that's supported by those on the left and the right, but not those in the centre. Put my economist cap on. It has a nice way of internalizing the externality, and if you yeah. really value that that location, well, you're you're going to pay for it. But then, 
there's it seems to be a nice distributional effect because just by luck you might happen to be living somewhere where a Lewis line goes by and if you're paying the extra that could be a windfall under normal circumstances whereas if you're paying this land value tax that's tax receipts that gets to be redistributed socially so um there seems to be a double dividend. That, that's right, and and it comes. It it it's it, it's very hard to come up with a negative to a land tax that can't be dealt with in some, uh, in some way. So some people would say, well, what about the little old lady who lives in a house that gets the Lewis? And you know, are we saying we have to force her out of her home? Well, no. What you can do, as they do in many countries, is uh, you can still charge the land value taxes you do to everyone else. So there's equity, um, but instead of her having to pay on an annual basis if she has no income, she can roll it up and they can take it out of the value of her property from her estate when she dies. So she doesn't ever have to deal with the inability to pay, the lack of income, um, but she has the wealth mm. and the wealth has increased in value at public cost. So there's no reason why somebody like that should be expected to get sort of capital gains uh, without having to pay when other people do. And any other asset, you'd have capital gains tax. But for this one, for your own, uh, the own, your own home that you occupy, for some reason, we've designated that it's kind of free money, no matter how much it goes up. So, okay, so coming back to the whole idea of we have to push out a long-term supply curve as flat as possible. Um, one thing that comes to mind in that context is that in an Irish context, at least, we see sort of bottlenecks in supply and we see sort of a lag between maybe an economic shock and maybe, maybe the outcome. And is, is this something that, that, that's, that's common in property markets or is it just maybe a, an aspect of, of recent developments? So there's a there's a, there's a paper um, written by a couple of German-based economists uh, called No Price Like Home um, that was published in the AER a couple of years ago. And they what they do in that is they try and assemble the the best evidence we have of housing prices over the long run. So they, they have some countries back to the 1860s or 70s, others from the early 20th century. And anyway, they put them all together and you can see this pattern. That up until the 1960s and 1970s, the exact timing varies a little bit by country, um, but kind of in the century up to then, um, housing prices bobble up and down, but they bobble up and down and are at roughly the same level adjusting for inflation. Um, now, once you go past the 1970s, there's a pretty clear upward trend. It's like a hockey stick um, effect. And, and the argument that they have, and it's kind of supported by other research that looks specifically at, um, uh, at land and, and housing supply, is that land use regulations, land use restrictions are ultimately at the core of this. This is not a construction cost story. This is not about the, the marginal cost of building an extra home in terms of labor and materials. It's just too high. But that's not the case for most countries. I'll come back to Ireland in a minute. Um, it's the, the, the availability and cost of land and what you can do when you get a site. So you contrast, say, Tokyo and New York. Tokyo and New York were roughly the same size in the, the 1960s. In Tokyo, you're allowed more or less do what you want with your plot of land once you've bought it, subject to earthquake codes and that kind of thing. In New York, they have a very detailed plan of what you can and can't do, restrictions on, on what you can build, all that kind of stuff. Um, and now Tokyo is approximately the Tokyo metro area is approximately twice the size of, of New York. So in terms of growth, um, New York is clearly constrained. There's a lot more demand to live in the area and that's pushed prices up, but the supply has not followed. In Tokyo, I'm not saying housing is cheap in Tokyo, but it's certainly cheaper than it would be if it had followed the path that New York um, uh, has and 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 you can you can follow that all the way through to the Irish case as well. In Ireland, we have very onerous restrictions on what you can and can't do with a particular plot of land. If you come along and say, "I'm going to put in a 12-story building here," you can be guaranteed that it'll go to the local authority, potentially go to the board Panola. There'll be lots of people who'll have opinions about um, and rights to have opinions and rights to curtail and and all of that. Uh, makes supply more and more inelastic. But, and this is a kind of an important but, on top of that, we also have construction costs being very expensive. So lots of different places around the world have this problem about land use restrictions uh, reducing the elasticity of supply. In Ireland, in addition, we also have very expensive construction costs further reducing the responsiveness of supplies. We've, we've kind of like the worst of, on, on both sides, on, on land and on materials or land and construction, um, uh, there's, a, there's a problem in, in the Irish construction sector. Now, I might be putting you on the spot here, but uh, in terms of the regulations, you, you reminded me of, of a story I heard that 
there was a regulation that we weren't allowed to build above 16 stories because that was the height of, of Liberty Hall. Is that is that correct or is it an urban legend? So there's, and there's a few urban legends um, and more generally, you know, some some people uh, that would come into the country from abroad and find it kind of amusing yeah. that uh, nobody's allowed to build tall except for the trade unions that kind of um, uh, there's, there's, these stories kind of emerge in most cities for, for Washington, D.C. You couldn't build taller than one of the monuments and you know, this kind of stuff. I'm not sure what the exact um, rules were, but the the, the exact origin of the rules were. But there is um, there, there are restrictions on how tall you can build um, within, say, Dublin City Council, for example. Right. Um, and uh, the the I think the reasoning ultimately is a kind of a fear that if you don't do this, that somebody will propose to build 20 stories on where there's no demand for 20 stories. Um, well, there's two sets of fears. One is about the aesthetic effect um, and one is is about, you know, kind of random overdevelopment happening where there's no demand. Now, in a capital bubble, um, or, uh, sorry, a credit fuel bubble, you will get uh, kind of what you might call vanity projects uh, in, a, you know, in, a, in a normal environment where yields are as either not low and, and credit is not flowing around, uh, it's unlikely you're going to get um, development taking place uh, where there's no underlying demand. And remember, ultimately, if supply comes on at too great a volume, all that does is push down the cost of whether it's offices or apartments or whatever the oversupply is in. That doesn't sound like the worst outcome. I'd much rather have too much housing than too too little housing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so another related point that comes to mind is we it seems like Dublin is a very low rise city compared to other cities. And it seems to be a legacy of past building. And we could do with some really high rise building. Now, is there an argument for maybe internalizing the benefits 100 years? Well, it's very hard to predict 100 years down the line. But if you could say, well, in 100 years time or 50 years time, even we might need more high rise and internalizing that into maybe some sort of construction that's that's done now or is, is that already internalized sufficiently i think you raise an important point and how i would think about this um is what do we know about the nature of housing demand over the next say 50 years uh, yeah. so the eurostat and cso will give population projections out to the 2060s or 2070s um you know we 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 our best guess is that the population of Ireland is going to rise from 4.8 million to something like 6.5 or 6.7 million over the next 30 to 40 years. Right, so that's a pretty big increase. That's you know an extra almost 2 million uh, being added in the Republic, um, leaving aside the North for the moment. Uh, on top of that, we have two other big picture trends, which were we know Ireland is on the path and Ireland is also kind of late to the party. The first is urbanization. So in most high income countries, 80 to 85% of people live in cities. In Ireland, it's 65%, not because we have a different economic structure, but because we've got some of the longest commutes in, in Europe. We've actually, our labor market is urbanized and our housing market is not. Now, for me, the, the, the policymaker's choice is pretty obvious there. You want Ireland to, uh, you want you want to, enable Ireland to allow its housing supply match its underlying labour market. So you want to allow people to live close to work rather than live far away from work over the next 30, 40 years. So not only do we have this big increase in population coming down the tracks, in all likelihood, we have uh, a, that, that growth is going to be concentrated in the cities. And we know another thing as well, which is that household size is very likely to continue to fall. So over the last 50 years, household size has fallen from above four persons per household to below three. And it's likely to continue to fall to roughly two or maybe a little bit above two um, over the next half century or so. Now this That might seem like a completely arbitrary stuff. What does that matter? Well, if you take up the same population, take a population of four million people, and you have them in, in four-person households, you need one million dwellings. If you go to two-person households, you need twice as many homes. And not only that, the homes have to be for smaller households. So it's a different kind of housing stock. So you, if you take all those three factors, you take increasing population, increasing urbanization, and falling household size, we know, and this gets to your you know, 50 or 100 years down the, the line point, mm -hmm. 
we we know is maybe a strong word that are are by far our best guess as to what the kind of nature of housing demand is going to be like in 2070 or 2060 or 2050 is we'll need a construction sector that's able to build uh, housing for smaller households in urban centers uh, so that means that the policy system the planning system these local area development plans and so on they need to prioritize um, uh, this kind of housing which is Mo by far most efficiently built in kind of medium to high rise in in urban cores or at least centers of employment um, in the urban cities so i think it's on the planning side you're going to get that most easily you could of course tweak it on the fiscal side and say if you build this kind of housing you'll pay less tax because we need this kind of housing over the next 50 years my kind of preference is to try and keep the tax playing field as level as possible given voter skepticism and how the last set of incentives for building certain kinds of homes turned out with section 23. Sure. Absolutely. That's a, that's actually a really interesting insight. Um, okay. So we've talked all about how markets work when people are rational and they're talking about supply and demand and they're taking into account what they need and they're, they're consuming based on that. Um, if we look back at the Irish property market and when we talk about maybe the Celtic tiger years, uh, some would argue that perhaps there was a bit of a departure from that when we had this we had this sort of price bubble. I think it would be useful maybe to, to go back over what what was driving the price price dynamics. That, you know. uh, to, to to explain the uh, the Celtic Tiger bubble and subsequent crash, uh, one key feature of the Irish housing market was the building society up until the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. What the building society was was it was, it was kind of a, a way to recycle local savings into uh, construction activity and in particular mortgages later on. Um, the, the reason that, that that's important for our story is because they were only, you didn't have a deposit in a building society, you had shares, equity shares in the building society. If it overstretched itself, the building society collapsed. So it was sort of internal incentive within the building society to never lend too generously. Now, in line with developments elsewhere, in particular in the US and the UK, in the 1980s into the 1990s, uh, the building societies and banks effectively merged into one sector. There was no longer specialized financial institutions. You know, had these universal banks um, and the universal banks like Bank of Ireland and AIB, um, they got into mortgage lending for the first time. So they had no track record of, of widespread mortgage lending. And of course, what they did was they started competing to get the market share. And then you've kind of in these um, uh, new market entrants like Bank of Scotland, Ireland, um, uh, come into the market in the early 2000s and they need to get market share too. So what do they do? They all compete on how much of a deposit you need. And of course, that was held constant with the building societies because they would live or die by this. The, the banks successfully, albeit ex post in 2008, 9, 10, made the case that you couldn't let them die, that by, by having these universal financial institutions, if you allowed the mortgage bit to die, well, then the retail bank bit would die, the ATMs would die too, um, whereas previously they were separate. And, and this race to the bottom in terms of deposit required basically just pushed up prices. You take the same income, um, but now your savings are levered up more. You get 10 times your savings as a mortgage, not just five times your savings, or you get 20 times your savings, not just 10 or five times your savings. That, of course, just pushes prices up. You've the, you're shifting out the credit uh, supply curve. You're giving people more money that filters through into the housing market. And of course, with inelastic housing supply, you're just pushing prices up. Um, and, and housing prices rose by a factor of four in 10 years. So they rose from, say, an average of €125,000 to an average of €500,000 in, say, Dublin in the, in, the, in the decade to 2007. Now, the lesson was learned. The central bank came along and basically it has made modern universal banks act like old building societies in uh, putting in place these minimum deposit requirements. So the, the more recent uh, upswing in prices is not only significantly smaller, um, it's also of a very different nature. It's not to do with credit uh, flooding through the system and, and, and pushing prices up even when rents were falling. That was what was happening in the 2000s. Mm. It was about underlying scarcity. There was a, a scarcity on the sales side and on the rental side. So both sales and rents 
where sell prices and rent prices were rising in the mid uh, 2010s. What extent are, are, are people, you know, rational or irrational or whatever? If, I mean, the key feature here, and you can call it irrational if you, if you want, I kind of, it's a, a potentially a, a divisive term, certainly within the economics community um, or between economics and its critics. Uh, the key feature of housing markets and indeed a lot of, of, of asset types is people have, at least in part, backward-looking expectations. If you ask people what's going to happen house prices over the next year, they're the best guess. If, if you were to say to me, Ronan, guess what people are going to tell you, my best guess is going to be what, they, what happened in the last 12 months, um, because that's what people typically use as their guide for what happens housing prices over the next one to three years. And in doing that, you build in these kind of cycles um, in, the, in the housing market that as borrowers and lenders became more and more confident in the late 90s into the early 2000s about what was happening in the uh, in the housing market that then just filtered through into into prices people were willing to lend more and people were willing to borrow more more and more and of course the longer it went on you people like david mcwilliams saying this is going to crash and um, but of course the longer it goes on the more people get sucked into that and at some point it does crash and um, that's very different from what was happening in the 2010s we can now say because we're in the 2020s. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but that's a, that's a very interesting point about expectations. So there seems to be, uh, when, I, when I reflect back on that period, it was people's expectations were built around what they saw everybody else doing. And it was no longer, they were no longer buying based on their need, but they were buying based on, on other aspects, maybe what they say, well, I might need it in the future, so therefore I'll buy now because I expect things to change in the future. And I, my expectation of things changing is because everybody else expects things are going to change. Yeah, like if you, if you think about um, like th- th- this whole idea of a property ladder, um, so this is one of the one of the papers uh, in, and that was part of my, my DPhil um, at Oxford, which was the property ladder idea. You buy a property... In, in Ireland in the mid-2000s, you might buy a one-bed somewhere in a, in, in a town that you're not even connected to because it will give you capital gains that you can crystallize in two years that you can use as a deposit for the house you actually want to live in. Um, and there was a lot of that going on that people were afraid of missing out. And that's a key part of the bubble mentality. Um, and therefore engaging in transactions that would never survive once the credit bubble was over. And you can know it's a credit bubble and still try and time it, or you might not know it's a credit bubble. And I remember watching primetime and seeing people say, well, I had no idea interest rates could go up. And you're kind of wondering, like, if people don't know interest rates can go up, how are they allowed to sign a, a sort yeah. of 35-year interest rate contract? Um, uh, so it can happen all types of market participants. Basically, that's what's what's going on there, is that people were like, well, if I, if I sit on the sidelines, I may not be able to afford something in three years' time. Um, so I might as well get in. And of course, the, the, the price of, say, one and two bedroom properties, even though household size is falling, the price of one and two bedroom properties has collapsed by a lot more, or collapsed by a lot more post 2007 than the, the, the price of three, four and five bed properties, because you had people buying them only to flip them to get the capital gains. Yeah, it's very. But uh, if we're looking at. Um the property market up until now it's very much it's very much now based on a lack of supply and a lot of discussions about how to well up until the, the last month or so solutions to maybe increase the supply as you as you said at, at the top of the podcast um and one solution proposed is for example land tax that might help reduce land hoarding is that something that that's that's, that's actually uh, prevailing to a large extent and would you see it as as being a, a considerable solution to to the problem i see so the, i see kind of three key elements to solving ireland's housing shortage uh reform of land use and implementing something like land value tax is one of those three because what you want to do there what effectively that's doing and there could be other ways of doing it but i think this is just by far the most obvious and direct way of doing it is to increase the supply and decrease the cost of land and at the same time direct land to its best use 
by best, I mean kind of most socially useful use. There's still a role for planning and zoning. Um, so if you want to protect, say, an old 18th century building, the value of the land underneath that is basically zero. Because if you buy that plot of land, you're buying this 18th century building on top of it, so you're buying the maintenance costs of that 18th century building on it. But so you just got like various features in there that, that mean that uh, you can reflect social preferences and still direct investment and punish hoarding, um, but without actually forcing anyone to move out of their home. If they value the area, they can still pay the tax or roll it up and pay it at the end, as we discussed. So, so land use and a land value tax as the solution to the problems of land use um, is one key element of solving Ireland's housing problem. The, the second is construction costs. And I mentioned earlier that the cost of building in Ireland is just astronomical relative to our own incomes. If you look at, say, building a two-bedroom apartment, given that's where the, kind of the core of, of demand is going to be over coming decades, really only the richest kind of 10, 15% of households could afford a newly built apartment. How, and that's excluding land costs, how have we got to a position where only the richest can afford um, a basic minimum spec two-bedroom apartment? You could argue labor costs are too high, you could argue materials costs are too high, or you could argue that the minimum spec is too high, or some combination of those, or something else that's driving it. And I don't have a good answer. I can't say this is, it's X percent this and, and, and Y percent that. Um, but it's, it's a question we desperately need to know the answer to in order to get responsive supply. Uh, so, so reducing construction costs by something like a third um, is going to be needed if we're going to get the kinds of housing we need, not just in Dublin, but all across Ireland. We need significant volumes of new homes. And I say apartments or housing for smaller households, people probably have in their mind's eye a very specific type of unit. But actually apartments are as diverse as houses. Apartments or multifamily living or multi-household living covers everything from student and co-living through to pre-family and no-family sort of urban core high-rise apartments to downsizer apartments for people as the, as the kids have, have left to independent and assisted living complexes that are assisted living as before nursing home. But all of those are kinds of housing we don't have in Ireland at the moment. Mm. We're going to need them in, in, in uh, they're very expensive at the moment. And if I may, the, the third, and I'll, I'll just introduce it now and we can talk about it later. The third element is we need to reform social housing as well. And those three, land use, construction costs and social housing, what we need to do to get a responsive housing system to the needs we have. You, uh, you touched on a, a point that's uh, something that, that's close to my heart. So I lived in Germany for a couple of years there and I lived in an uh, apartment, like, the, Germ like the, the continental system is very different to what we're used to in Ireland. Apartments, you can get apartments the size of bungalows that are, can, can fit uh, a reasonable sized family in. But what, what I had was a long-term lease where you could have it for many years into the future. You had, um, you could do whatever you wanted with the house. You could paint the walls, drill holes in the walls, whatever you wanted, as long as you gave it back the way you, you, you got it. Is there, is there a scope for that sort of uh, regulatory change and maybe a shift in Ireland's, you know, Ireland's mix of, 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 of our view of rental? So... I think there's two elements in there. And on the regulatory side, I think Ireland is actually performing better than most people, including most landlords and most renters in Ireland think. Right. We have a system of six-year leases. Uh, so if you pay your rent, um, and there's a couple of caveats, and maybe that's where the issue uh, can be, um, but if you pay your rent um, and you're beyond your six-month probation, you have, no matter what piece of paper you signed with your landlord, you have a six-year lease. And once you go past that six-year lease, you enter into another six-year lease. So the, the long-term leases are there. Right. The problem is that the, the appropriate supply is not there. We don't have institutional landlords in Ireland in the same way they do in continental Europe. We have largely, and this is not a, this is not a, a sort of a value judgment, this is just kind of a, a neutral descriptor. We have largely an amateur landlord class, as in uh, it's, uh, they're not institutions, they're individuals or maybe small operations with a couple of people in them. And they have one property or two properties or three properties. Most landlords in Ireland just have one or two properties. Um, and, and that's completely different to the, the European system where you've got sort of local pension funds uh, running 
uh, these long-term rental units to generate long-term income for their pension fund for almost the same residents. It's kind of like, if you think about it at a deep level, you, it's, it's very similar to having a mortgage and an asset at the end, which you're renting from a body that includes yourself. And then the income comes to you in a payment as a pension down the line. Um, but we're, it's, it's less about the regulation and more about the supply and the type of supply, which is why it's important that Ireland developed this build to rent sector. One of the things that's been frustrating for someone like me is over the last 18 months, you've people giving out that pension funds from elsewhere in Europe are coming in to fund the construction of rental accommodation. The argument being, well, why can't they fund it for, for, for sale and we could buy these properties? Um, and that's their sort of, by all means, we can build properties for sale, but let's not give out to people to come in and build rental property as well for precisely the reasons you talked about. This is something we should have and are missing. Yep. So that was my follow-on question uh, regarding institutional investors. Uh, you anticipated it perfectly. It seems that incentives are well aligned between the needs of the long-term renter and the institutional landlord. And I would agree wholeheartedly that that would be a missing piece in the puzzle when it comes to long-term renting in Ireland. But they seem to get a bad press. Um, you mentioned the connection between the pension fund ownership and the renter's membership of that pension fund. And when it's framed like that, it seems like a much more positive relationship. But we need to, I suppose we need to think about that in an Irish context. If I was to translate that to an Irish context, perhaps the building society holds a similar place in Irish hearts. I wonder, is there a role for those institutions um, in getting more long-term renting in an Irish context? Regardless, I think perhaps managing the optics of institutional investors seems important to tackling this problem. But perhaps we could be uh, moving into the territory of political questions yeah it's a it's a, it's a political question and, and 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 i think the there isn't an, a role here for um to get at what exactly the underlying issue is um and if it's uh if it's an ownership thing if ownership is is just viewed by almost everyone in ireland as, as preferential to renting why and what are the reasons for that and if it comes down to something like well what else am i going to live on when i get to 65 um, well, then again, we should address that. And I think pension policy and housing policy are not that disconnected. They should be a lot more connected in, in Ireland's case. I'd love to see a default opt-in system where 20% of your paycheck is taken and put into a, put into a pension fund. That will uh, So the first time you ever take a job in Ireland, that's what happens. You can opt out if you want, but the state is saying, here's what you should be thinking about doing. Um, and then in that fund, it builds up over time. You can make one tax-free deduction for a deposit or you can leave it all in. And your fund will, of course, be worth a lot more if you leave it all in when you get to 70 than if you've taken a chunk out for a deposit for a home age 35. Um, so I think that's the way to think of it, integrating those and undermining the fears that people have, removing, allaying those fears that people have about, well, they're building rental accommodation, but, but what about me where am i going to own my property why do you need to own so you mentioned social housing maybe we can move on to discuss that if you go back to maybe early social housing policy in ireland was perhaps government built uh built maybe in the 1950s counter cyclical type investment then that sort of shifted perhaps towards um more privately built it's probably more pro-cyclical but now i suppose we're moving into maybe a, a recession era and it seems that this sort of the old system might be more uh, appropriate in that context, in that it might be a sort of a counter-cyclical investment. But I just would be interested to hear your, hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, some of the words you use there, I think, are key. It's about the cyclicality of uh, social housing. And what we, you certainly want to avoid is social housing being pro-cyclical. Because if you think about it, suppose the underlying need for new homes in Ireland is, and for round numbers, let's call it 50,000 a year. 50,000 a year across all types and locations, big and small, urban and rural, and need to get churned out every year in order to meet these kind of big trends coming down the line, or underway rather, and to meet the targets we need for 2050 or 60 or 70. And if the market is giving you 35,000 or 40,000 or 45,000, it's kind of trivial to say, okay, well, then the state needs to support, in whatever way it decides to do it, the construction of the remainder. Um, so it should be the other five or 10 or 15,000. But clearly, it's kind of like you've got this, this overall benchmark, 
and you've got the market and it's one minus the other, right? So it's, it's, it's very much counter cyclical. Um, the, the problem is in line with this kind of the, these changes in the eighties and nineties that uh, I mentioned earlier, and you, you kind of saw the, the death of the building society um, in line with that, the financialization of housing, and that, you know, it's, it's a word that, say, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have particularly liked because I thought it was quite nebulous. John Kay has a great book, Other People's Money, where he, he talks about financialization as basically what fraction of your national income do you set aside to manage your assets? Uh, and when you think about housing in those terms, like the financialization of housing um, in with lots more... Um, uh, that's that, that's kind of the, the general idea of, of financialization. But if you, if you think about that happening in the 90s and 2000s, basically the state entered a deal. Perhaps it didn't know it was doing this. It was, I say, more unconscious than conscious. But saying instead of us providing the housing for those on the lowest incomes, why don't the private sector do it and just ask for no deposits? Because that's what was stopping these people from getting a mortgage traditionally. Um, so the, uh, the, the, that deal worked as long as the, the credit bubble was underway. But of course, post 2007, you don't have, the, the state has, has kind of denuded its, its, has run down its, its social housing system. And the, uh, the, the financial, the financialization is, is over. You're not going to get private sector institutions lending to people on insecure incomes anymore. Now the credit bubble has stopped. So what the state needed to do as early as 2008, 9, 10, was step in and implement something like a cost rental system. So a cost rental system, if you, just to give it a, a quick introduction, is it, it basically the same principle, elastic housing supply, just applied now um, to people on all incomes, including low incomes. So the idea is, Suppose uh, on a per month basis, it costs a thousand euro. You take your upfront costs and you spread them out over however many months and a thousand euro a month to provide 90 square meters of accommodation. And we know affordability is something like a third of your net disposable income should go on housing. More than that, you're kind of burdened with housing costs. Suppose you earn 2000 euro uh, I'm going to make this easy for myself. Let's call it 2,100 euro um, for the maths. A third of that is 700, right? So this is a household that can afford 700 for its housing uh, burden in terms of affordability. Um, but that the cost of housing in monthly terms is a thousand euro. A cost rent is a 300 top up basically, yes. or, or rather the income subsidy gets you to the cost rent. Uh, and what that does is it, it, it means that no matter how high or low your income is, you can live in social housing if you want, but the lower your income is, the the more of a top-up you get. What it, it moves away from is this kind of fixed amount of subsidy you either get or don't get. In Ireland, we have these systems where if you, well, you went over the threshold, bye-bye social house, off you go now, and fend for yourself in the market. That's not a very clearly those threshold effects are not great in the same way that going just below the threshold or, or earning literally zero get the same subsidy that's not great either and and, and it's also sorry uh, just to add one other thing it's when people talk about a right to housing that's the way you practically implement a right to housing because if you think about it whatever income you are on you either pay the market rent or you pay the cost rent with a top-up sure um and it, it means that everyone has a, a an effective right to a home um, so it kind of almost irrelevant as whether it's in the constitution if you have this kind of system in there. One of the interesting things about, but if you introduce cost rents, uh, the kind of the counter argument would be, well, who would ever pay market rent if you could get the cost rent? Yeah. Um, and that's fair enough. Um, what I think you would do there is you'd have two different systems, one where there's an ownership stake and one where there, there isn't. Um, and if you pay market rent, you're actually buying an equity stake. Um, uh, and if you're if you're not able to do that, you pay the cost rent. You only pay interest. You don't pay interest and and principal. That's how you calculate the cost. And there's ways of 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 getting around that. The um, the broader point though is is whether it's the government itself that's doing this, um, and if it's crowding out uh, the private sector. And I think there, you could argue, okay, if everyone wants cost rent, you can do that. The government can do that. And in some countries, um, the the government uh, in various levels is by far the biggest supplier of housing. And it doesn't really matter whether you're high or low income. Everyone is kind of entitled to one of these as long as you pay the appropriate cost rent or whatever the way of, of financing it is. 
in Ireland, I don't think that would work overnight. We could certainly move to a model where we do that in 50 years' time. But if overnight you did that, the first associations people have in Ireland with state-built housing is those are for the poorest people in society. Therefore, I don't want to live there. And if I don't want to live there, other people want to live there or vice versa. Therefore, I'm not going to move into one of those. You are not going to get a good mix in uh, in, in social housing. What do I mean by good mix? What I mean by good mix is if you think about all the other stuff that becomes associated with an area, the location-specific amenities, unemployment rates, schools and school quality, um, and uh, other facilities. Uh, they're far better served by having a mix across income levels than having just people from the lowest 10 or 20% of the income distribution in one area and being left to fend for themselves. The middle class would certainly like, if we just, if we'll send them off somewhere else, we don't have to look at them, um, but that is definitely not the best solution from a, a social point of view. So what I would suggest is if we can't get to the publicly built model overnight, this is kind of Owen O'Brien's idea for, for public housing, is that what you do instead is the cost rental can work through approved housing bodies, again, as it does in, in many European countries. So the housing bodies can partner with the private sector. You can go in and you can say, guys, you're building two and a half thousand apartments in this development. We'll take 500 for, for cost rental and we'll manage all the tenancies. Um, so it doesn't really matter who's market and who's social. Um, the approved housing body acts as a layer between um, between them. So you don't know if you're next to someone in social housing, God forbid. Um, uh, and I think that's a much easier way for Ireland to do widespread social housing. But notice it's not the government doing it directly, it's the government financing it, but doing it through housing bodies. And the other key feature of this, and this has been the bane of Irish public housing since independence, is that, and even before actually, um, is that in with publicly built housing, there's a conflict of interest between the government um, and the, the 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 homeowner and voter. There's always, not even the homeowner, that's the Freudian slip, is that that's what the, the government wants to convert their social tenant into a, into a voter, into a homeowner voter, and say, I got you that home for next to nothing. So in the 1980s and before, um, with the... Um, the Labourers Act and, and, and even indeed the Land Act, you could argue, is the same thing. You have the government trying to buy votes by giving you cheap access to real estate. Um, with approved housing bodies, that is much, much more difficult to do. There's no conflict of interest because your local authority councillors are on one side and your approved housing body is somewhere completely different. OK, well, maybe just for the last topic, just move on to maybe the trajectory of the Irish uh, property market. I know you've written a paper looking at how you would see the Irish property market developing into the 21st century. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This was obviously 
in a world without COVID-19. Uh, I wonder, maybe that might be a good way to frame it. How would you have seen things develop before this, this transpired? And do you see any difference relative to that? Mm. Great question. And I think the what I mentioned earlier about uh, increasing population in total, increasing urbanization and falling household size, they are the key factors. And I don't see them being fundamentally overturned by, by COVID-19 and the associated economic crisis. That I imagine that in 10 years time, these will still be the factors that are shaping new housing demand in Ireland and all the way through into the kind of the mid late 21st century. That's how it looks at the moment. Uh, but clearly COVID-19 does affect the short and even into medium term outlook, kind of the, the three to five year outlook for the housing market presumably is quite different now. Uh, we're early days, so we're kind of mid-April um, at the moment, um, just, just to date it for future listeners. Sure, yeah. um, uh, so all the construction sites are currently closed. Um, the longer that goes on, the longer you lose the capacity, it gets rusty, it moves elsewhere where construction sites are open. Um, there is a danger that supply, which had been on an upward trajectory in terms of new supply, um, actually goes into reverse over the next couple of years. That would make these problems worse and it would just actually shorten the, the timeline. We're talking about needing to build something like 1.3 or 1.4 million new homes over the next um, 30 or so years, uh, predominantly apartments in towns and cities. Right? And if we've lost three years of that, then you have to build them in 27 years, not 30 years. Right? It's, you've actually got a higher annual target. Um, what about the market before then, right? What about the market this year, next year, the year after, and so on? Well, clearly the sales market is basically on hold. You can't go and view a property. You're not going to enter into a kind of a lifetime, uh, one of the biggest transactions of your life um, when you can't even see the thing. Uh, on the rental side, it's been slightly different. There has been a fall off in rental listings m much more recently, um, but the the, the the exception to that, the big caveat was the, the short-term lets market looks like it's moved over into long-term lets. And I think that gets to the core of what the long-term footprint of COVID-19 might be. Is it the case that when this is all done and dusted, international travel, uh, short city breaks, uh, easy migration from one country to another, and sort of just-in-time multinational supply chains, if they're all a thing of the past or tempered in some way, then that could affect Ireland's business model. Ireland's business model is basically acting as a, a base in the European market for North American firms. Um, and th those firms have kind of depend on ease of mobility of parts, goods, IP, people, all that kind of stuff. And if that is undermined, if mobility is undermined um, by COVID-19 on a medium term basis until a vaccine is kind of basically uh, universal, then that could affect Ireland's economic fortunes. And then that would affect that base number back there. The population growth um, may not be nearly as large. We may go into net emigration again if the business model is in some way fundamentally affected. Yeah, no, there's a lot of things to to disentangle there so a lot of supply side <laughs> issues oh, no, uh, just in my own brain um there's a few supply side issues but and a few demand side issues um and so when i think about housing markets it sort of confuses me a little bit because you have you have loads of houses and you have people who want to rent and people who want to buy and they're sort of inter they interact a little bit and when i look at say this shock now and it's a shock, as you say, that people mightn't have as many international people maybe coming to work in work work in, in Ireland or in Dublin specifically. And if there's a, a reduction in that demand, and I imagine a lot of the majority of those people would be perhaps renters or even younger people would be renters who might be disproportionately hit. Well, then we might have a less of a, a, a reduction in demand when it comes to renting. Would this have a knock-on effect and maybe on? on the, the the buyer's market i mean so it's it's, it's obviously as you said there's, there's there's quite a few steps in that in that chain there so there's quite a quite a bit um to to disentangle i think the key point is that even if you cut off net immigration that as long as it didn't go to sort of vast net emigration you still have underlying pressures for um the 
with with the population and the age structure of the population, the tendency to get married later, the, the greater fraction of people having uh, no children or not getting married, uh, living longer after the children move out, all that stuff still points to significant demand for things like purpose-built student accommodation, co-living, pre and no family apartments, downsizer apartments, independent and assisted living especially on the independent assisted living side, that is definitely not going anywhere. And that is a type of housing we don't have in Ireland. Um, so, so all of those, it, it looks like, yeah, you, could, you could certainly change the, the figures for, say, 25 to 34-year-old apartments in urban cores by, by fiddling the, the net migration stats. Definitely, you definitely could. Um, and that's the bit that's most attractive, I think, at the moment um, to international investors. But there's a whole range of other housing needs there that still have to be met. And we haven't even really started scratching the surface of any of them. Um, and I don't think, I mean, let's, <laughs> let's chat again in a year and see sure. where we are. But I don't think COVID is, is going to affect those. Okay, well, that's, uh, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, now one thing a lot of people talk about, and I suppose we, we can't avoid it, is the discussion about all these Airbnbs. And I think you touched on it briefly there. But my basic question is, is that enough to affect prices or is it just a drop in the ocean? So, and I, I, I make a prediction here to say mid-April, make a prediction that in about a month's time or maybe even for the rest of the year, I'll have to fight an argument that goes along the lines of, uh, rents were rising up until COVID. Then COVID saw a bunch of Airbnb properties move into the long-term rental market and then rents started to fall, case closed. Um, now, even if zero properties went from the short-term let into the long-term rental market uh, over the last month, you would expect rents to fall over the next uh, nine months, 18 months, but however long this is going to go on. Right? There's a huge negative demand shock um, and there has been a small positive supply shock as well with uh, something like, uh, I'll need to update my figures, we've been kind of updating them on a weekly basis, but something like six or 700 properties in central Dublin, in particular Dublin 1 and 2, uh, going onto the rental market that weren't there in previous years. Um, so six or 700 is about 1% of the underlying need for rental accommodation in Dublin, which I estimate to be something like 60 to 70,000 um, to get rents back to affordable levels. So it's certainly welcome and it'll be welcome for those uh, six or 700 households that find somewhere to live. And, but it's by no means the solution to the entire uh, shortage of, of accommodation, rental accommodation in Dublin. And it certainly won't be the reason if rents do fall 30% over the next year, it's not going to be because of a few hundred short-term nets moving to long-term nets. It'll be because of a catastrophic collapse in, in aggregate demand, the demand side of the market. Uh, so one thing that, that I don't know if, I don't even know if, if this is in your remit, but perhaps you might be aware of literature on this. Um, one thing anecdotally I'm hearing a lot about is people working from home and this, I think this is almost like uh, creative destruction in that we now have we have this we have this shock and people are almost realizing well I can actually do my job from home and a lot of people would move out of Dublin if working from home was available for as little as two days a week. I wonder, is there any way we can sort of get a handle on well how to what extent this could actually affect housing market in Dublin or is there a propensity is there much of a propensity maybe to for this shift away from Dublin as a result, or would you have any sort of insight into that? Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a good kind of urban economics question. Is what is it about a city that makes people live where they do? What is it about a location in general that makes people live where they do? Uh, one thing we have at the moment, actually, is we have long commutes. So we have people, uh, roughly half of households have a long commute as measured by the last census. So we actually have a very poor match between where people live and where people work already. Um, so people's jobs are kind of say on the M50 ring and people live in North Wexford or um, South Cavan or wherever it might be. Uh, that I think is the, the wrong way to go. I think the solution assuming that the jobs were to stay so I'll come, come to your question in a second the solution is to allow people to live close to where the jobs are now what you're saying is well maybe if the jobs become more in the cloud and it's less tied to a location what would people want then uh, now that comes down to the idea of a producer city versus a consumer city what is it about a city that makes it a city I mean, there's two elements. There's the consumption and production sides. If you take away the production side completely, which I don't think you ever will, but suppose you removed it completely, people would still cluster together because they like experiential services and those experiential services like 
uh, music and sport events or uh, good bars and restaurants, all that kind of stuff, they become significantly cheaper, cheaper to provide the population density. Um, so so the, the desire to cluster is not just a production thing, it's a consumption thing as well. Um, and I'm not saying we'll definitely cluster more, even if the jobs were to go in all in the cloud, but it's, I wouldn't be expecting um, Irish people to spread out even more. The problem is Irish people are already too spread out. We need to allow them to cluster more. And, and by allowing them to cluster more, things like broadband, healthcare services, as I say, uh, uh, good food and good drink, uh, good nights out, good sport events, all of that becomes cheaper when we cluster together. So I think there's an underlying um, force going the other way. So certainly some people will, will take advantage of it, but multi-generationally, I think people will still cluster. Okay, that's an interesting trade-off then. Uh, it's a nice framework to uh, set up an analysis if anybody wants to do that paper. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so finally then, and uh, this is a question that you're not going to thank me for asking, but if somebody is on the housing market and we're looking at a post-COVID, to see this, to see this as an opportunity, what would be your advice? I think you've touched on a lot of the fact that it is, I, I can nearly anticipate your answer, but maybe I can... I can let, let, let you go ahead. Well, well, firstly, let me thank you for asking the question. <laughs> um, the um, what I would say, uh, it, you know, it it doesn't change. Clearly, COVID adds more uncertainty. Uncertainty is not just risk. Uncertainty is where you don't even know how the risk is distributed. Right? You don't know which way things are going to go. Um, so uncertainty definitely doesn't help its decision making. But the core rules I would always tell anyone, sort of best friend or stranger who stops me um, on the street, is firstly, right, there's, there's, they say, oh, now a good time to buy, yes or no? And you're like, well, how much, how much are you offering? You know, what property is it? Right, so the, the way to think about the right price is, well, the first kind of screening question is, are you looking at somewhere for 10 plus years? Um, because if you are, with the way the Irish property market is set up, if you're paying back your mortgage for 10 years and you had a sort of 15% deposit to start with, you have a whole lot more flexibility in 10 years or 12 years or 15 years. If you did need to move, you can take an equity hit, but... That's, you know, an equity hit. If things were really bad in 10 years time, fine, you can still move. Right. If you're kind of up to the hilt in, in 100 percent mortgage and it's two years and you need to move and the property has fallen in value by 50 percent, then obviously it's a very different um, proposition. So the, the kind of screening question is, is this 10 years plus or not? And that's kind of to get people to think about property that be happy to live in long term. Um, the, the, then the kind of the, the, the $64 billion question, not that anyone has $64 billion to spend on a property, but um, is how much do you bid on a particular property if it's the kind of the right property for you? And the scary way of thinking about this, right, is, and it scares me, you know, thinking about I, myself and my wife bought a property a couple of years ago. We bid more for this property than anyone else in the entire planet, all sort of 7.8 <laughs> billion people. And it was us, right? Like, and that is always true for anyone who owns a property. That for some reason, you thought this was worth more than anyone else, right? And you've got to think about what it is that, that, that makes the property worth more for you than anyone else on the planet. Right? Most of them, okay, fair enough, they don't know the property was for sale. But the other people who were bidding for the property or who came to see the property, what did they see? you didn't or what did you see that they didn't and of course people's circumstances differ so to cut to the chase what i would do is i would always think about what's the market rent for a property and express it over a year so if you say <clears throat> excuse me um just for give myself um at the end of a podcast some round numbers to work with suppose it was um 1600 euro a month in in rent um over 12 months um that works out at about twenty thousand euro um, uh, in rent. So we call it 20,000 euro is the annual rent. Okay, do you, are you going to bid 10 times that, 15 times that, 20 times that, or 25 times that? Um, like 10 times would be an amazing deal. It's the kind of stuff that investors were trying to get in the Dublin market, say five, six years ago when nobody else um, was, was interested in buying Dublin property, right? It's a kind of a, uh, it's a 10% yield, right? 10 years, 10 goes into 110 times it's a 10% yield. If you bid 100 times the annual rent, you're trading off what an investor would call a 1% yield, right? 1% yield is, 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 is nothing, right? It's a very low return for a property that has risk, that, well, an asset that has risk like a property does. So the kind of golden rule or the rule of thumb is that uh, roughly speaking, uh, 4 to 5% yield on housing is... That's where they settled in the US and the Europe looks like it's not a million miles from that. What does that mean? It means about 20 to 25 times 
the annual rent. And I think if people had been taught to think in those terms in the, in the early 2000s, they would have made far less risky decisions or at least they would have taken more time before bidding, as was quite common, 30, 40 or 50 times the annual rent to secure property. So for someone kind of in this space in the next 18 months, two years, and they're looking at a property, is it somewhere you could see yourself living in in 10 years? Obviously things can happen, but right now, is it somewhere you could see yourself living in in 10 years? And then what multiple of the annual rent are you gonna bid? If What's your maximum bid? And is it 20 or 25 times? You can go above, but just be aware that you're taking on more risk. Okay, that's a very comprehensive answer. It's it, uh, you've all you've obviously been asked it a lot of times, but uh, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to work it down into a one sentence version. But hopefully, there's enough there for people to. Uh, yeah. that, that, that's that's perfect for, uh, for for the podcast. Um, no, I really appreciate it, and thanks for um very interesting discussion. I will let everyone know. Everyone has opinions on housing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's a, um, blessed and cursed by my choice of area and economics. Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay, thanks very much, Ronan. So my thanks to Ronan, uh, some really interesting insight in relation to the property market. I've had some time to reflect on Ronan's analysis of working from home. I think the trade-off he described between the merits of living in the country and working from home versus living in Dublin can be translated into an Irish context by considering how much somebody from the country values the city, for example, pints and toasties and grogans, versus being able to jump out of the home office straight onto the local GA pitch. Uh, maybe I've been in the lockdown for too long. Okay, so thanks to everyone for listening, showing your support through the week. Remember to give us a shout out on Twitter at Irish Econ Pod. Most of you are sick of me shouting for five stars in Apple Podcasts. I'm not an Apple user myself and it pains me every time I have to say it, but they really are make or break in terms of popularity. So if you get a chance, that would be really appreciated. Uh, along with that, of course, remember to tell your friends on your next Zoom call. Thanks very much.